says right there, okay, I'll buy it if you, Dan Aaron, will come run it and together we'll build a big company. I told Ralph, you're not doing this without me. He thought I was out of my mind. You're listening to Philly Who, the podcast that tells the stories of the doers, thinkers, and performers of Philadelphia. My name is Kevin Schmidlin, and today I'm sitting down with Julian Brodsky, who was on the ground floor of the company that has the highest floor in Philadelphia, Comcast. Comcast is everywhere. It's even in the Philadelphia skyline. But in the early years, back in the 60s, Comcast had only 1,200 subscribers, and most of them lived in small-town Mississippi. That company was three guys, a small office, and a card table. On the first day of work, I showed up with a card table to folding chair. <laughs> Your first day at the office, you had first to First day at the office, desk. yeah. Now, over 55 years later, Comcast has 55 million customer relationships and 184,000 employees. There's nothing beat building a cable system in a town that didn't have anything beforehand, no jobs, no thing. Here was something new out of whole cloth. That's exciting, creating something. Julian's story and the story of how a three-person Philly company became one of the largest in the world is now on Philly Who. Stay tuned. This episode of Philly Who is supported by Pita Chip, the fast, casual Middle Eastern restaurant inspired by Syrian street food. It's just like other fast, cash spots where you can build your own salad, rice bowl, or wrap. But this one has tasty shawarma, veggies, falafel, hummus, and flavorful sauces and spices. They've got great gluten-free and plant-based options too. Pita Chip is family owned by two Syrian immigrants who have been in Philly for 25 years. And this year, they were featured in Philly Mag's list of best shawarma in Philly. Their two locations are on North Broad near Temple, Goals, and on Market Street between Penn and Drexel, right next door to the Philly Who Studio. Order pickup or delivery today via pitachipphilly.com or via the Pita Chip mobile app. And if you use promo code PhillyWho, you'll get 15% off your first order. That offer is not valid for catering, which, by the way, they also crush. So hit them up if your office is tired of the usual pizza and bagels. Big thanks to Omar, Muhannad, and the Pita Chip family for supporting Philly Who. Comcast is, in many ways, the biggest company in Philly. On paper, its market cap is over $200 billion, and it ranks 32nd on the Fortune 500 list of the biggest U.S. companies. Physically, Comcast towers over the rest of Philadelphia, as its HQ campus includes the Comcast Center and the Comcast Technology Center, the two largest buildings in Pennsylvania, let alone Philadelphia. Today, Comcast touches almost every aspect of the 21st century digital world, it provides phone, internet, and cable TV services. It owns NBC Universal, DreamWorks, and Sky Media. It owns the Flyers, the Wells Fargo Center, and soon it'll have its own streaming service. But back in 1963, when cable TV was just a fledgling concept, the company's founder, Ralph Roberts, dove all in. With him was Daniel Aaron, who ran operations, and their financial wizard, Julian Brodsky. They would create the company that has for decades heavily influenced Philly and American life, though only one of them was actually from Philly. Ralph came from New York, 
Daniel was a refugee from Nazi Germany, but Julian was raised in the 1930s in Philly. I clearly remember the trolley cars. Now, almost every north-south street in Philadelphia had a trolley car. It was the way we got around. You played stickball in the streets. You played basketball in the backyards. And it was just it was a wonderful way to grow up. I was going to Overbrook High School, and we played in the, all the independent leagues. A young player by the name of Wilt Chamberlain came along. I, I was six foot three, six foot four, pretty big for a high school uh, player. And uh, I totally dominated Wilt. <laughs> you I, beat I, him. I, I, I slapped him around, slammed the ball down his throat, moved him all around the court. It was a lot of fun. The next year he turned 14, it was all over. Right. <laughs> that was it. Uh, you, that was that's it. when you just quit, right? That you beat, was it. You beat Will Chamberlain and I'm done. I can't oh, do well, anything about it. <laughs> yes, I know. We played, but it was a, it was a, diff- it was a different quantum, a yeah. different outcome. If someone said, what do you want to be when you grow up? What would you have answered? If you look at the captions in my uh, high school yearbook, I aspired to be a writer or the left bank in Paris and uh, living the bohemian life. My favorite author was always La Boheme. My favorite author growing up was Ernest Hemingway, Thomas Wolfe, and, uh, and Scott Fitzgerald. And, uh, so did you write growing up? A little bit, not much. I went to Wharton. I was at the University of Pennsylvania, and uh, I was one of the few Wharton people who were the staff of the Pennsylvania Literary Review. I think I read that you were one of the only people at Wharton that had a beard at the time. In Is the that 50s, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. so, and that's probably one of the few people there who was a socialist. You were a socialist. Yes, very much so. Growing up, my first job was in the labor movement. I worked in New York City for the International Ladies Garment Workers Union as an auditor. What drew you to that, to the labor movement, though? Was it your ideologies at the time? Family and ideology. Uh, it was a typical family growing up in the 30s where uh, Franklin Roosevelt was God. Every home had a portrait of Franklin and Roosevelt in it. And you thought that socialism was the answer to a lot of the ills of the world. And the socialists really didn't have a whole bunch of use for the communists. And so it was a different thing, but it was, you know, how do you control the means of production? Where do, how, how does wealth get distributed? The typical issues of that day. So how did that come to be? Because we're talking about somebody who's into the arts, you know, who's into the, the social humanities. How did you get into just numbers? Well, it was my wife. I was 23 and she was 21. She was a school teacher in Media, Pennsylvania. And uh, she went to Temple. She was born in Philadelphia. She, in her old sweet way, said, you better think about how to make a real living. We'll have our first child shortly. And she thought that perhaps accounting, in her mind, I had wasted time and two years in the United States Army. I had a wonderful time there. That was your choice? No. That wasn't your no, choice? No, I was invited by the government right. to serve. Invited is a good way to put it. <laughs> yes, yeah, come join us. <laughs> and uh, in those days, uh, we went for two years. Mm-hmm. There was nothing going on between Eisenhower in Washington and me in Huntsville, Alabama. The yeah. world was safe. Yeah. That's a long time, right? Did you yeah. wind up enjoying that time in the Army? I actually did. I had a worthwhile mission, the Army Ballistic Missile Agency in uh, Huntsville, Alabama, where we had about 200 German scientists 
who had been taken by the OSS out of Panamundi before the Russians get them. So you come home. So come home, and, and she suggested perhaps accounting would be a good thing. And how do you respond to that? Yes, dear. <laughs> <laughs> Smart man. And the, the first firm that I went to was just down the street here at William E. Howe & Company, and it was a nice regional accounting firm. Germane to our conversation is they had among their clients six or ten of the CATV pioneers. These were all located in the rural areas, the valleys of Pennsylvania. In those days, a TV signal was mainly transmitted via airwaves. Your TV had an antenna, and the quality of your picture depended on the strength of the signal. So if your house was too far away from the station broadcasting the signal, or if the signal was blocked by mountains, you couldn't watch TV. In these valleys and in these rural areas that were distant from TV transmitters, uh, entrepreneurs had to do something because there were no TV sets in the towns. Because they couldn't get the signal because... Because the signal was going over their towns or it was being interrupted by hills or mountains in these valley towns. Some homes built antennas, perhaps with masts as high as 40 or 50 feet above the house, trying to catch the signals. That only worked in certain places. Now, I will tell you, the, the letter CATV in the late 40s and early 50s and even into the 60s did not stand for cable television. It stood for community antenna television. And the community antenna developed where these entrepreneurs would build a tower normally on a hillside, perhaps as much as 500 or 1,000 feet high. From there, they'd run wires into the town, hook up homes, charge 2 or $3 a month for this antenna service. And it's interesting because this technology was very primitive and originated in Philadelphia. A company named Gerald Electronics. The capacity of these systems were normally three channels of television, which is perfectly adequate because there, at that time there were only three networks in the United States, NBC, ABC, and CBS, and that was all the television there was. And from that, they started to wire the rural areas of the United States. So I wandered around Pennsylvania for three or four months converting these companies. Were you a TV watcher at the time? Oh, sure. Westerns dominated I Love Lucy and Milton Berle. Those were the days. I think it was starting of PBS. So as you're going around and helping these, these well, companies. You know, when you're in public accounting, you see dozens of businesses. Yeah. I can remember coming back to the staff room and saying, guys, you can't believe what these guys are doing out there wiring these towns. Now, as you see this, you're, you're intrigued by it. But are you thinking like, this is the next big thing? This no, is going to explode? not at all. You're just like, oh, that's not, that's cool. Just another thing. I mean, next week it was a hosiery factory or a sand and gravel operation or yeah. a retailer, a chain of stores. It's just another business. Right. But I loved accounting and I, and I loved auditing. It was a way to express and quantify economic concepts. So everything was going pretty well for Julian. He had passed his CPA exam. He was starting a family. He worked for an accounting firm. Then one day, he met Ralph Roberts. Ralph owned a business. It was a company called the Pioneer Belt and Suspender Company. About that time, there was a development in the clothing industry called Sansa Belt. Sansa Belt was a technology that allowed pants to be held up 
without the use of a belt. Ralph decided it was time to sell Pioneer Belt and Suspender Company. And to do that, he needed help. And that's how he came across a young, eager accountant named Julian Brodsky. What were your first impressions of Ralph? Loved him. Charismatic. And that, that only grew. So I went out there every quarter, uh, knock out a financial statement. Took me an hour and a half, two hours, perhaps, to do the job. And we sit and talk. And this went on for two or three years. Wow. And I'm getting to know him very well at this point. I'm going out there every three months and right. doing the tax return. and For two and, hours and then spending the rest yeah, of the day hanging out, right? Yeah, yeah just talk to him. And, uh, so finally, the legend has it, on Chestnut Street, uh, there was a serial entrepreneur in Philadelphia by the name of Pete Musser. Pete had a uh, kind of rundown system built in the early 50s in Tupelo, Mississippi. On a separate track, there's a fellow by the name of Dan Aaron. His family were escaped from Germany in the late 30s. Both his parents died when he was young. He bounced around in foster homes, couldn't speak English as an 11-year-old, sat with the first graders to learn English, went back to Germany in a tank for the U.S. Army, got a master's degree from the Annenberg School at Penn, and went to work as a journalist uh, for the Philadelphia Bulletin. One of his assignments was to interview this new public company, Gerald Electronics. So Pete Musser is desperate to sell this small cable system he owns in Mississippi. Dan Aaron is a journalist following him along, and Ralph Roberts wants to buy a new business. Remember, he sold the belt company, so he's looking for something new, something fresh, something interesting. And then a little serendipity happens. The legend has it, I believe it, that uh, Pete Musser and Dan Aaron were on the sidewalk on Chestnut Street. They see Ralph coming the other direction. They're having a terrible time. So they're trying to sell this cable system that's in Mississippi. Right. And they're struggling with it. Right. And they see Ralph on the street. Right. And they pitch him on the street. Right then and there. Right there. And Ralph remembers the stuff he saw on cable and kind of liked it. And Ralph is such a genius. He says right there, okay, I'll buy it if you, Dan Aaron, will come run it and together we'll build a big company. I mean, that's the golden gut of Ralph, the, the brilliance. And these were really great men, great products of the greatest generation. What, did Ralph come back to the office and tell you? He called out to the office to say, this is happening. We're you know, doing this. We're going to have to get the accounting and the legal stuff. The Wolf Block, sure, yeah. was the law firm involved. Do you remember how you felt when you found out about it? Because you had yeah, been Yeah, I tell you exactly how I felt. I was out there that afternoon. I told Ralph, uh, right there was always said, I just resigned. You're not doing this without me. <laughs> because I remember my experience with cable. I've known you now for three years. He bought that story. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and that was that. And that was that. There was the three of us. Well, how did he react when you said that you were going to out of my mind. How did your wife react when you said you were going to leave the firm? I was on a very strong path <laughs> for a good accounting career. Yeah. She thought I was out of my mind. So everyone thought Her you Her mother were... knew I was out of my mind. Yeah. <laughs> on the first day of work, when I said, where's our card table? He said, why? Well, I don't have a desk. So I showed up with a card table to folding chair. Your first day at the office, you had first to bring day your the office, desk. Yeah. There were five of us in about 700 square feet in Balakinwood, on the 11th floor, all yeah. bunched together. And that's where we started out. 
Now, from this office around Philadelphia, you're running a cable operation in Mississippi. Right. That's crazy. Why did you stay in Philly? Well, that's where we lived. We, were, we had no intention. Of there was no we were build, Our ambitions were to build a national company. So it really didn't matter where you lived. And it was a very strange time to be Mississippi. This was at the height of the civil rights movement. And I was there every month. I was in Meridian, Mississippi. It was in the same bar with Mickey Schwerner, who along with Goodman and Cheney were murdered in Neshoba County. They were living in, he, he was living in the in Meridian. Uh, the two of them had just arrived that day and they went out to this place, believe it or not, a place called Philadelphia, Mississippi. That's where the three of them were murdered and buried under a dam. One of my problems was that I looked like a civil rights worker. What did you look like that made them think that? I looked like a Jewish guy from Philadelphia. Yeah. And uh, our folks were very cautious. They wouldn't allow me to drive at night. I mean, there were church bombings every weekend. The newspaper office was owned by Canadians. It was blown up. Wow. I remember going to a club in Meridian where the Klan would be sitting on one wall, the FBI on the other wall. It was a very difficult times, But we... We were businessmen. We had very good partners and our general managers and our law firms and some local investors from yeah. Mississippi. Uh, what was the dynamic like between you three at, at, during these years? The best way to describe it, and Houdin, who was a marvelous speaker, marvelous writer, marvelous master of the metaphor, he said, well, you can describe the matters of, of Comcast as three guys trying to drive a car. There's this maniac, Julian, with his foot on the gas, trying to go a million miles an hour. There's me, Dan, terrified, pumping the brakes as hard as I can, trying to stop this maniac. And there's old Ralph, with his hands on the wheel, keeping everything steady and staying the course. But we kind of were polar opposites in almost any business decision, up, down, left, right, red, black. And the, that make any difference. We meet Ralph's office on these major decisions, and, uh, and I tend to be loud. I'd make a lot of noise. The place would shake. The, what was brilliant about it? We did eventually reach consensus on everything, and there was no second guessing. Yeah. So let's talk about the rise of cable in what the seventies and eighties. Well, there were different phases. When we bought Tupelo, it was a three-channel system. It was a classic reception CATV system. We bought the three networks from Memphis to Tupelo. And it was a pretty ragged system, very long lines, extensions. The further you went out, uh, application, the weaker the signal became okay. and the spottier the service. Well, a cherry picker opened in somewhere in northern Mississippi. And the uh, cherry picker is not affiliated with any particular network. Just picked up signals and it had some interesting sporting events. So we had to carry it in Tupelo. Okay. So we had to face our first rebuild situation and we had no money. Where you had to rebuild. We had a, because we only had a three channel capacity system. You know, the system was only capable of carrying three channels. Right. So we had to do it on the cheap. And the way they decided to do it was to change the spacing of the amplifiers. To put them closer together so they could have more channel capacity. It really was a, no, not the cleanest way to do it. We didn't put in new wire, new cables or anything like that. Simply put everything closer together and put a few more amplifiers in. As a result of it, we had five channel capacity. 
And of course, being the bean counter that I was, I go storming into Dan Aaron's office saying, why are we having five channels? We only need four. So the world's come a long way since then. Yeah, uh, yeah. Was it hard to believe that you might need a fifth? <laughs> well, I couldn't imagine it. As the company's growing like this, like, are you seeing the future of what this company would become? Like, are you seeing this national, international world player as this is going? Uh, no way. The thing I liked more than anything else was building and opening a cable system. Having a business where there was no business before. Oh, sure, it was fun doing the deal and creating financial instruments that never existed before. Comcast pioneered half a dozen of those innovations that are still being used that nobody had ever heard of. Right. And that was fun. That was nice. But nothing beat building a cable system in a town that didn't have anything beforehand, no jobs, no thing. And here was something new out of whole cloth. General manager would point out, Here's a boat in my driveway. Thanks for the stock options. That's exciting, creating something that wasn't there before. Our mantra, our being was growth. Never six months went by we didn't open or buy a cable system. Ralph and I, we joke about a couple of us, we never saw a cable system we didn't like. We built a system in Sarasota, Florida. Sarasota was about 50 miles from Tampa. Now, there were two of the stations, NBC and CBS, were on the south side of Tampa. You got to get it with a rabbit ears or a modest antenna on your home. The ABC outlet was on the north side of Tampa. That only came in good half the time. Now, in those days, no one would build a CATV system if it had more than one and a half channels, something like that. A half channel is a channel that comes a good half the time. Oh, okay, yeah. I was going to say, that, that was a thing? <laughs> well, that's, well, Sarasota was two and a half channels. Right. Every cable operator turned it down. No one would go near it because there's too much free television reception. Dan and Ralph were both active tennis players. And when we were looking at Sarasota, we are staying at the Colony Beach Club on Longboat Key, and there's... No prettier ride that I've run into as coming in the morning, coming in from Longboat Key across Sarasota Bay into Sarasota. And, and Dan Aaron is falling in love with the community. And uh, he says, oh, I don't care what anybody says. This town needs a cable system. <laughs> <laughs> with all that television, Dan felt we had to have something else. So he created the Sarasota Film Festival, which was he bought... I don't know, for five or $10,000, 50 of the worst movies ever made in Hollywood. <laughs> there were class B movies, there were class C or D. These yeah. are terrible. Yeah. There's nothing digital these days. You had a movie projector, which you had a connection with a mirror that allowed you to hook up a camera, which is about the quality of a 1980s security camera. And you showed the films, and they were terrible. Did people go? No, it was on your TV. Put it out in the cable system. Awful movies. These awful movies. And I remember I used to go down almost once a month to close out the books and balance the receivables and stuff like that. And the general manager would say, it's such an embarrassment with these movies. You know, yeah. can't you talk to Dan about it? This <laughs> Get us some better movies. And he says, we couldn't afford better movies. Right. But Dan's insisting it's all we have. That's what we're selling. So after several months of this, I said, all right, pull the plug. I'll talk to Dan. I tell Dan over the weekend, I come on Friday and tell him that. Yeah. And Dan's ready for riots. 
We got one phone call thanking us for taking it off the air. <laughs> <laughs> what made him think that everyone loved it so much? He had nothing. He was desperate. <laughs> he was desperate to show something. Yeah. By 1975, all of the communities that needed reception help in the country had it. The industry and Comcast were at a standstill and had nothing more to sell. At that time, HBO went up on a satellite, and that changed everything by giving Comcast a new desirable product. Movies without commercials. People wanted that desperately. It was very tough to break the habit of people who were paying for reception only because they didn't otherwise have reception. They thought that was good enough. Right. People that had reception wanted something else. Yeah. The movies without commercials. Cable rates were regulated for the reception by each municipality. And it's very hard to get a rate increase going to talk a city councilman into raising rates. A skill we developed <laughs> over time. Uh, let's say the antenna service the television receptor, we'd be at that point in the game, we'd be charging seven, eight dollars a month. For HBO, we'd charge between ten to fifteen dollars a month. And with the homeless being close together, of course, so same thing to build a system. We're only using one channel. For HBO you had twelve channel system. Just turning off and on that extra channel. Yeah. Was an extra, you know, ten, eleven dollars a month. Right. Wow. And it was very valuable. People were thrilled. Well, because they got that They got the movies. Without commercials. Right. Yeah. And 24 hours a day. Wow. And these, by this time, the technology had increased and there were greater capacity systems. This is when ESPN started, CNN, USA Today, Nickelodeon, MTV, radical change. It was at that point that the industry changed from a reception service to an entertainment medium. Then the world went along. Remember, we were small, let's say in 1985. We're the 20th largest cable operator in the United States. That's 20 years after our existence, 22 years after we started. We always played a lot larger than we were. The world was crazy in the 1980s under economics and, and everything. And it was the greatest thing for us because we built our company on junk bonds during the <laughs> 1980s. We went after Star Communications, which was the third largest cable operator. And we were the 15th larger. We had the backing of Merrill Lynch wanted to take on Mike Milken and Drexel Burnham and KKR. It was one of the classical fights of the 1980s yeah. that made headlines every day. And we lost that one, but we made an enormous imprint on the industry. And in the next month, we were invited to join with number one and number two to go after Westinghouse's cable systems. because they didn't want to fool with us. Right. Uh, they thought we were rabid dogs. Were you? Well, we never saw a cable system we didn't like. <laughs> <laughs> we never backed away from a good contest. Yeah. And we were pretty good at doing deals. Uh, we were friendly with all these people anyway. Now, the many miles of cable required to connect people's houses to their television service needs to live somewhere. Like phone lines before it, these cables would be installed above streets and sidewalks, which is government property. As compensation for using public property as a right-of-way for a private company's cable lines, Local governments charge a cable company what's called a franchise fee. Generally, a government will only enter a franchise agreement with one company. So when that franchise is up for grabs, it can get pretty competitive. Philadelphia actually had four iterations of the franchise granting process, literally starting in the 1960s. In the 1960s, they issued six franchises, divided the city into six parts. 
The Inquirer got one. The Bulletin got one. We got one. Some other types got some. Never got built. It was never quite finalized or anything. Uh, and then they kept doing it. During one of the iterations, and people were, it was like a Christmas tree. People were finding different ornaments to hang on to to make their proposal more attractive. So we offered something that literally nobody else could offer. We were in Balakinwood. We said if we were successful in getting the Philadelphia franchise, this was either the second or third iteration of the of the franchising process. This was going on from the 60s right through the whole 70s into the 80s. And still no, not a cable system in Philadelphia. And we said we'd move our corporate headquarters from Balakinwood into Philadelphia. We were real sports. We had about 35 people in Balakinwood at the time. <laughs> What time frame is this? Probably somewhere in the 70s. Yeah, yeah. And so was that the the carrot that the city went for? I'm describing, I'm born in Philadelphia. I went to Charlottesville Elementary for the SGU High School, Overbrook High School. Played basketball with Will Chamberlain. Are you trying to tell us you're a Philadelphian? (laughs) (laughs) But then we came up with an idea that we created a subsidiary. This is during the franchise, before it was was granted. We'd create a, a company and even go public with it where 20% would be owned by women, minorities, all of whom had to be working in the city or living in the city of Philadelphia. Nobody had ever quite done anything like this. We appeared at churches, shopping malls, just that pitching this thing and to buy this security. That a security was so unique. We'd give you your money back if we didn't get the franchise because we wanted to go to before city council and say, here's an entity that has these characteristics, has all these Philadelphians in it. It was so unique and so elaborate. And they finally agreed, yeah, I guess it is a common stock with these following characteristics. And so it's like the night before, and we really had it. We, we worked hard cultivating, because these were not sophisticated investors. We had to explain to them how this piece of paper worked if you bought it. So we, we smelled... Something didn't seem right about it. We were sitting in, in the banker's office. I said, let's see the tickets. Who's going to get the shares tomorrow when we go public? Said, what is this? Bryn Mawr, Haverford, Radder. Where, where are the people we talked to? This firm had given it to all the regular customers. Because it was such an attractive piece. It was a can't-lose piece of paper. I remember our treasurer getting the box, just throwing it up in the air. He said, what is this crap? And we postponed the offering. and said, "We, I want to see the tickets of the people we talked to. We, we gave you the names and everything else. They're subscribing to it. That's what we want to get the shares. So uh, and did it they was get wonderful. Them? Oh, yeah. Oh, oh. You didn't fool with us. And so we had wonderful local people on it, including the president of Holy Family College out in the Northeast. Yeah. She was fabulous. As a board member, we had her as a board. We had local representation actually on the board of directors yeah. of the company. We wow. did it right. But that hadn't really been done before. Not quite like this. Never with a piece of paper like that. Right, right. That was the fourth iteration. Cable system was built in 1984. Pretty late in the game in terms of the history of the cable industry. But it was a great cable system. And uh, I think everybody was happy. Fast forward for a moment to a story about 1991. Mm. We, at that point, had moved into Philadelphia. So you had been in the suburbs. We were in Balakim. Right across on City Avenue. Yeah. I mean, I mean, oh, right. Just outside of Philadelphia. Yeah, it was a 10-minute drive. We were Philadelphians. We had moved into 1414 South Penn Square, which was on the corner of 15th Street and City Hall. January, 
1991, a fire started in the building. We were on the 35th floor, top four floors of the building. Ten floors below us on a Saturday afternoon, some painters had left some rags in the offices they were painting, and then a spontaneous combustion occurred on fire started in the building. And I remember around five o'clock, this flipping channels. Before the local news, I saw a photo of a building burning. I called Brian and said, Brian, the building is burning. <laughs> it was the worst high-rise commercial fire in the United States prior to 9-11. Three firemen died. None of the firefighting systems worked in the building. The, the building was in ruins. And we all assembled across Penn Square at our printer's office. We could look out the window and see the building still smoking and burning, and the firemen all sitting on the sidewalks, and three guys had died the night before fighting the fire. How many people did you have at this point? I had a guess it was somewhere between 350 and 400 probably. That's a huge office that's just overnight homeless. We made the payroll that week, and it was the Comcast wave. And believe it or not, despite all the modern tendencies, we did not have a written resiliency plan. It was just entrepreneurs doing what they do and getting done what had to be done at all different levels. And there was never any question as to whether or not Comcast would be headquartered in Philadelphia. Well, there was one along the way. We were the third largest operator with 7 million subscribers at this point. This is 2002. And AT&T was the largest cable operator, much larger than we were. Comcast decided to make a bid to acquire the assets of AT&T Broadband. This would bring together cable assets serving more than 21 million subscribers in 41 states, and if successful, would make Comcast by far the largest cable provider in the U.S. We're down to the last, let's say, five or ten deal points. AT&T wanted us to move the corporate headquarters to New York, because that's where they were. And uh, we, led by Brian, said no. That's a deal. We will not move the headquarters from Philadelphia. Why not? We were Philadelphians. Comcast is a Philadelphia company. It's part of us. We're part of them. And the, the company's staying in Philadelphia. Was there any conversation behind closed doors about actually doing it? You were willing to put the deal on the line. Yeah, we made that as a deal breaker. And we felt pretty good about it. We, we, we had been through a hell of a fight to get to, the, to that point. You know, with the economics and everything and the corporate governance. And uh, it was a very dicey deal. It's a minnow swallowing a whale. Right. To go from uh, from seven million to twenty some million uh, overnight, and become the largest operator in the wow. country, but that that was our commitment. Today, Comcast is still the largest cable operator in the U.S. But it's not just television service that these cables facilitate. It was in the early '90s that Julian started hearing rumblings about this new thing called. The internet. I'd heard about it, and I didn't quite understand it. My brother's a physicist, worked at the Watson Labs right. in, oh, yeah. in, at IBM. So I called him. I said, do you ever hear this internet thing? He said, oh, sure. We use it. You use it. He says, how about I come up? Can I see it? Oh, yeah. So I go up to Yorktown Heights to Watson Labs, sit down at his computer. He starts typing a whole bunch of code and things in telenet using... Archies, Veronicas, and Gophers, whatever they are. It's all very interesting, but uh, I don't know what the big deal is. I don't see any financial aspects to this thing. Goodbye, goodbye. About a year later, I run into something called Mosaic in a Box. 
and it then renamed Netscape, ah. which was the first practical browser. Right. Then I got a demonstration of that, and I said, holy moly, the world ain't never going to be the same. What did you see in that I demonstration? I saw a way to do everything in plain talk, and then I saw the web. I said, oh, my God. So I said, I got to learn more about this, do this and that. So I created Internet Day for Comcast, wrote a four-page memo, briefly describing the Internet, and do the following things prior to Internet Day, get an email account, buy a book on Amazon, do something on eBay, this and that, you know, turn on your computer, which some people didn't know how to do. <laughs> <laughs> that was step one. <laughs> and uh, that, that sort of thing. Then I had the top 25 people in the company come in and have Internet Day. When I throw my education prior to the, uh, the Internet Day, I wanted to learn more about the Internet. As the only way to do it is to uh, make some VC-type investments. Right. We went out to Silicon Valley, and I had 24 meetings set up over five days with investment bankers, startup companies, law firms, to learn all about it. And we decided we were going to invest $10 million during that week. Wow. We created Comcast Interactive Capital, which is now called Comcast Ventures. I put together a small group of people, uh, five initially. Off we went. During my administration, making about 70 technology investments, enormously successful. Yeah, what's, what's one particular that comes to mind as, as a huge success? Josh Koppelman, got a 40x return we made on that. Wow. But the story of the Internet Capital Group is the story of the dot-com right. bubble and the dot-com bust. How did the bust go? Well, it went along and had a market capitalization by December 31st. It went public in 1999 had a market capitalization greater than the Ford Motor Company and Sheesh. this and that and, what a time. and billions. And we were a significant shareholder. And we had our first liquidity you get locked up for a period of months after a company goes public if you're inside. Okay. You just can't sell until the market stabilizes and that sort of thing. So our first liquidity event was in January of 2000. And we have a right to sell 10% of our interests, which we did. By that time, we had maybe $20 million invested in the company. We kept investing as it was moving along. And we got something like $460, $470 million for that, for 10%. Then in March of that year, the bubble burst, in March of 2000. All the dot-com stocks started coming down. Our second liquidity event was in June of 2000. Now, the stock had gone, let's say, from $250 a share to $150 a share. And we on the finance committee at Comcast thought that was an aberration. We were truly drinking the Kool-Aid. Wow. And we didn't sell it. We could have sold $500 million worth of that, even at $150 a share. And we didn't. That was a mistake. Oh, boy. Do I want to know what it wound right, up being? I'm not going to cry about it because <laughs> you know, bulls make money, bears make money, right. pigs get slaughtered. How was it different being the CFO of, of a major company and then being more of a venture capitalist? It's a great question. It's very funny. Remember Larry Smith, we talked about yeah. him uh, when we had the fire. At this point, he's CFO, co-CFO with John Olchin of, of Comcast. He's watching me do this thing. You know, he thought it was a joke, this whole venture capital. How did you sit there and talk for weeks about making $2 million or $5 million investment? You and I do deals that are billions of dollars. I mean, that doesn't drive you nuts yeah. sitting there. 
Oh, I'm having a good time. I'm making a lot of money. It's you know, a deal's a deal. You know, just about a number, number of zeros behind it. Right. It's still the whole same thing. You're analyzing a company and stuff is good or bad. Everything about it. Yeah. So you mentioned how you, you got fulfillment from seeing the cable coming to towns, to building these things, building almost local economies, right? Did you feel any sort of that type of fulfillment as you were, you know, investing in these oh, venture firms? Oh, very much so. But yeah, that came very close to a while. It wasn't the same kind of physical thing. It was businesses. Now, you know the venture capital model. Mm. You have more failures than successes. Right. 17 companies we wrote to zero when, when the bubble burst. You know, over 2000, 2001, I've never worked this hard in my life. You know, saved three or four of them along the way, but uh, it was a slaughter. because there, there was no economic. It was a bubble. We made a lot of money before it burst. It had an enormous. Yeah. Earlier, we mentioned how you sort of felt intrigued by, by, by cable when it was, you know, the sort of, uh, when, when you first saw it in the hills of Pennsylvania. And then you were intrigued by the internet when you first saw it, you know, in the early to mid 90s. Is there anything today that gives you that feeling that you felt about those two things? AI, artificial intelligence. And a subset of that is machine learning. Yeah. You put those, all those things together, and it's very exciting. But I'll leave that to another generation <laughs> yeah. to figure out and that sort of thing. And uh, yeah. I'll just sit back here and collect my pension and be very happy about go. it all. It's clearly a melting ice cube. The big cable bundle will not exist. I think there'll be bundles in a shorter form, and I think companies like Comcast will be the aggregators. HBO, ESPN, Netflix have to charge... Twenty twenty five thousand a month to be viable. But you add all that up together, it cries for some sort of efficient form of aggregation to make it work, to get scale. So Comcast has had a history of, at times like this, changing the business model and just adapting and continuing to grow and to grow and to grow, right? It started with just cable access, then it got into the actual exclusive content, then it got into the internet. Now it's buying up content creators. Is that a function of the growth mindset that you three had? Yes, I think it is. Brian is trying desperately to maintain the entrepreneurial spirit of the company. And if you look at a lot of modern corporations of the size of Comcast, I'd say Comcast is flatter than the great majority of them. That's Brian's view of the world and how he structured the management. Now, it's very difficult to do when the company is as big. You know, there aren't many companies that are bigger. So, and you can't turn the Queen Mary on a dime. What would you say is a common misconception about you? That I'm tough. Oh, yeah? <laughs> yeah. I'm a baby. I'm a baby bear. That's all. If you could send a message to yourself in the past, what would you say and, and at what point in time would you send the message? Well, work 50 hours instead of 70 hours. And do more with your family. I think couple of generations after mine understood that sense of balance and the sense of quality of life that working isn't everything. Yeah. Can you build a company like this though while doing that? I think you can today. Comcast was always at the ragged edge of finance. We were so adventuresome, so expansive. Uh, probably. Uh, Dan and Ralph had a much better sense of family and balance th than I did. I was just compulsive about it. You know, probably could have done it some other way, but that's the way we did it. I mean, I sat there until midnight every night. You know, I was back seven thirty next day. So, man, you never slept. <laughs> Not much. Wow. Smoking my three to five packs of unfiltered Palmella a day, and Ralph saved my life by 
for figuring a way to get me to stop smoking. Wow. When you look at the Philly skyline and you see the Comcast Center and the, the Comcast Technology Center, do you ever take a moment to think back to bringing the card table into the office and, and say, look at that? <laughs> Every moment I see it. And I think of all the steps and all the great people along the way that made it happen, the hundreds upon hundreds of marvelous colleagues and supporters and stakeholders of uh, banks, insurance companies, investment bankers, lawyers, accountants, consultants, and colleagues. It was a spectacular group of them. And I think about Dan and Ralph all the time. If Dan and Ralph were here with us today, what would you tell them about about where Comcast is? I told right you now? so. No. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> Julian Brodsky retired from Comcast in 2011. He and his wife have lived in the same house in Cherry Hill, New Jersey for 45 years. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcasts app and leave us a rating. You can also follow along on Twitter and Instagram at PodPhillyWho, and you can join our email newsletter at PodPhillyWho.com. Philly Who is a Q9 production. Here is a very special thanks to Sam Schwartz, Lisa Hagen, and the Lift Labs team, and of course, Julian Brodsky. This episode was produced and hosted by me with associate production by Angela Gervasi, Jackson Neal, and Lauren Hunter, editing by Max Graham, music by Lee Rosevere, and artwork by Lauren Carhart. For Philly Who, my name is Kevin Schmidlin. Till next time.